Don't you wish you were Arthur? Would the more attractive of you please step forward? <laughs> it's gonna cost you $100. Let's make it $200, but I will ask you to simonize my car. <laughs> How rich are you? I wish I had a dime for every dime I have. <laughs> Anticipating your condition, and I brought you orange juice, coffee, and aspirins, or do you need to throw up? Kiss your wife like that? I'm not married. Keep smiling. Six, eight, eight, five, five. Usually, one must go to a bowling alley to meet a woman of your stature. I take it this bum will be calling you. Dad, he's a millionaire. You have my permission to marry him. <laughs> Are you a hooker? I forgot. I just thought I was doing great with you. <laughs> will you take my hand? That would leave you with one. <laughs> I'm going to take my coat. You don't have a coat. Oh, I'm going to take my time. <laughs> You're a rich one. How does it feel to have all that money? It feels great. <laughs> a dumb question. You're so funny now. I sometimes just think funny things. What do you do for a living? I race cars, I play tennis, I fondle women, but I have weekends off and I am my own boss. <laughs> Dudley Moore is Arthur. Don't you wish you were me? I know I do. Don't you wish you were Arthur? Arthur, the most fun money can buy. An Orion Pictures release through Warner Brothers. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program where we ask ourselves, is it yours? Today I'm joined by my good friend, Mr. Ryan Daly. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Paul. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for coming on with me again tonight. Oh, not a problem. Happy to be here. And at Ryan's request, well, I, I don't want to make it sound like Ryan's begging me to do movies. I specifically <laughs> asked Ryan if there were any movies he'd like to cover. And he mentioned to me that he would like to cover Arthur, and that when he's offered to do the same on the Film and Water podcast, Mr. Kelly, our mutual friend, was silly enough to not really want to do this particular movie. So Rob Kelly's loss is my gain because I watched this and in a nutshell, uh, as we were talking before we started to record, I fully expected this to be a very, very dated comedy that was going to kind of not hold up to, to the test of time. And I was happily surprised to watch it and enjoy it very, very much. And we'll talk about more of the details as we go on. I first saw this one in the movie theater in 1981 because I'm considerably older than everybody else in the world. And uh, <laughs> I had not seen it since the 1980s. I had seen it several times during that decade, but not since. Uh, Ryan, what was your first exposure to this movie? Well, I'm one of the younger guns in this podcasting circle that we have. So this movie came out the same year that I was born. Uh, but I saw it pretty early on because... In my home, my family sort of created a library of, you know, movies that were basically just grabbed either from HBO or from VHS copies that were then recorded onto blank tapes. My dad would get six hour tapes and record three, two or three movies on each one. 
And I remember Arthur being on the same tape as The Empire Strikes Back. So it, kind of an eclectic collection. You know, those are not movies that you would normally put together in the same in the same viewing. Um, but that really kind of shapes the way I watched them. So, yeah, I was watching this movie from a pretty early age in the 80s. Uh, probably way too young to get a lot of the jokes as it happened, but it was always just one of my favorite. The movie has some of my favorite comedy scenes of any movie I have ever seen. Um, so yeah, I, when Rob was doing his film and water podcast, I said, if you ever want to talk about Arthur, I'm your man. And he made jokes about the Russell brand version and kind of dismissed it. So when you made the offer, I was, I said the same thing. Rob's loss will be your gain. And, and to be fair, uh, neither of us have ever seen, from beginning to end the Russell Brand movie. I've seen little clips of it on TV when I'm flipping through the channels, and I've not been impressed with what I saw. I know that it has Russell Brand, and I know that it has the Batmobile in it, and that is about the extent of my knowledge of it. I just, I never wanted to see a reboot of this, of the Dudley Moore version that I love so much. I'm going to, before we get into any of the details about this one, I'm going to give the plot of this, which is as follows. Arthur Bach, Dudley Moore, is a spoiled alcoholic from New York City who likes to be driven in his chauffeured Rolls Royce through Central Park. Arthur is heir to a portion of his family's vast fortune, which he is told will be his only if he marries the upper-class Susan Johnson, played by Jill Eikenberry, the daughter of a business acquaintance of his father. He does not love Susan, but his family feels she will make him finally grow up. During a shopping trip in Manhattan, accompanied by his valet Hobson, played by the great John Gilgood, Arthur witnesses a young woman, Linda Marola, played by Liza Minnelli, shoplifting a necktie. He intercedes with the store security guard, Irving Nitzman, on her behalf and later asks her for a date. Despite his attraction to her, Arthur remains pressured by his family to marry Susan. While visiting his grandmother, Martha, played by Geraldine Fitzgerald, Arthur shares his feelings for Linda, but is warned again that he will be disowned if he does not marry Susan. Hobson, who has been more like a father to him than Arthur's real father, realizes that Arthur is beginning to grow up and secretly encourages Linda to attend Arthur's engagement party, where Moore, as an accomplished pianist, entertains guests. Hobson confides in Linda that he senses Arthur loves her. Linda crashes the party held at the estate of Arthur's father, and she and Arthur eventually spend time alone together, which is noticed by both families. Hobson is later hospitalized, and Arthur rushes to his side, vowing to care for the person who has long cared for him. After several weeks, Hobson dies, and then Arthur, who has been sober the entire time, goes on a drinking binge. On his wedding day, he visits the diner where Linda works and proposes to her. At the church, he jilts Susan, resulting in her abusive father, Bert Johnson, played by Steve, Stephen Elliott, attempting to stab Arthur with a cheese knife, though he is prevented by Martha. A wounded and groggy Arthur announces in the church that there will be no wedding and passes out. Linda attends to his wounds and they discuss living a life of poverty. A horrified Martha tells Arthur that he can have his fortune because no Bach has ever been working class. Arthur declines, but at the last minute talks privately to Martha. When he returns to Linda's side, he tells her that he declined again, Martha's dinner invitation, he means, but did accept the $750 million. Arthur's pleased chauffeur Bitterman, Ted Ross, drives the couple through Central Park, and the credits roll. Now, the biggest thing about this that jumped out at me, again, having not seen it in over, oh, thir probably in close to 30 years, mm -hmm. um, is the fact that alcoholism was not viewed in 1981 the way it is now. Well, you, you could have characters in comedy skits and in sitcoms where drunkenness was the source of humor. 
sometime I would say in the late 80s, alcoholism kind of became accepted as a disease and not so much as a choice. But just the same, it, it's now looked at very, very differently. And using that as a source of humor has become a much, much more difficult thing to do. So that was the reason I kind of watched this through a little bit of a, 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 an expectation of it failing over time. But the way the alcoholism is presented in this, it's, it's like he's using it as a defense mechanism. It's not presented as pure, you know, oh, look, he's, he's drunk. If you look at it very superficially, it is. But when you start looking at it more closely, it's really he's using the alcoholism to escape from the life that they're forcing him to and that he doesn't want to live. And it starts to make the movie so much more poignant when you look at it that way. Yeah, and it's really, it's weird because, like, I'm with you. Like, I I hadn't seen this movie in about 10 years, and when I sat down to watch it again, I got a little bit nervous in the first couple minutes that the movie would not have aged well for the same reason. The first time we meet the character, he's riding around the back of a limo, he's drunk, and it's just played basically for laughs in that first scene. And he picks up a prostitute, like that's the first scene he picks up a prostitute and he's kind of kind of a jackass to her like when he picks her up he's he's kind of like making fun of her profession and everything and and like i was yeah for the first couple minutes i was like wow i don't think this is a character that has aged well like i don't know if i'm gonna be able to like this character again as a grown adult knowing what i know now about alcoholism after a couple minutes you start to see exactly what you were saying that alcoholism is the way he kind of that copes and that he's he's led this sort of strange life where he's never been allowed to grow up or he's never had to grow up he has been so coddled and that's part of the relationship with hobson that hobson isn't just his butler but hobson like teaches him basic things like saying goodbye when you hang up the phone and sitting up straight and and like arthur just doesn't he hasn't really adjusted to being a, a normal person so alcohol is kind of this this defense but there is also this, I mean, I, I think we do get a little bit of a sense of it because it, while it is played primarily for laughs with the character, you see the disapproval from others. You see that Burt Johnson, his future father-in-law and his, you know, the, the fiance that he's, he's engaged to disapprove of this. They don't like it. They want him to stop. So I think they see it as his problem, even if he doesn't. Or, and I think Hobson does too. Oh, absolutely. Hobson clearly sees that he hasn't grown up because then when he does later, Hobson says, I think you're growing up. Um, I thought, you know what, in that initial scene with the prostitute, I actually, that's when I started to feel a little bit more comfortable with the movie because, again, you know, as we were talking about before we started to record, this is the first time I kind of watched it with reviewers' eyes where I was looking at it for the subtext and looking at it for how is the dialogue written, what's the acting like, what's the directing like, how's the score, instead of just sitting back and letting myself fall into the movie. And there were a couple of lines early on that kind of were a key to me. Uh, when he talks to the hooker and, and, you know, he says, what, you know, what do you want to, how do you want to spend the night? He says, I want to spend the evening with a stranger who loves me. And I thought yeah. that's, you know, he's looking for real love, not, I don't, I don't know, like just that kind of meant something to me. Mm -hmm. And then the, the, the line as they're driving away, when he says, don't you wish you were me? I know I do. <laughs> and I thought yeah, exactly. he wishes he was the person that everybody thinks he is. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, and he that that's come out because right after right before he says that he's talking about how good his life is. He's like, oh yeah, I drive fancy cars, I fondle women, but I have weekends off and I'm my own boss. You know, like that's the oh that's the terrible sacrifice he has to make. But it's 
but yeah, and then you get to the scene when they go to the restaurant and she's almost rejected because of her attire. She clearly doesn't belong in this upscale restaurant, but he is able to walk in with her and he meets his uncle Peter and his aunt Pearl. And he has this whole spiel with them where he's trying to convince them that she's a princess from a country that is so small, Rhode Island could kick the crap out of it <laughs> in a war. And he, he just keeps on going through this thing. They recently had the entire country carpeted. It's 50 cents in a cab ride from one end of the country to the other not a big place he just keeps going and they're like we get it we get it but then once he sits down at the table you kind of see this this little show kind of going off and he asks her why she's a hooker and she has these lines that kind of like hit me at first and she's like my mother died when i was six and my father raped me when i was 12 and his response is so you had six relatively good years and I laughed at first, and then I was like, oh, man, that is a horrible thing to say in that situation. But even and in the, it, the it movie, have been... they gave him the self-awareness that after he says it, like you could see, he realizes, okay, now I went too far. Right, right. And I think you, you understand that because instead of making him the bad guy, there, I, I think really quickly it's established that he's not a mean person. He's not a mean drunk. He doesn't abuse these women. Like this is like, I, I don't think he has a mean spirit in his body. He likes to have fun. He likes doing this for just pleasure and enjoyment. So if he does things that are, you know, uncomfortable, Puth or just kind of like rude and everything. It's just it's all it's all in good nature. He's not he doesn't he flaunts his wealth, but not in a way that he's lording it over people like he's so much better than. Because even when he picks up the girl Gloria for like two hundred dollars or something, he tells Bitterman his chauffeur he's like give the other one uh, one hundred dollars. She came in second. It's like yeah okay yeah he's generous about it. So yeah he's he's definitely not trying to rub it in people's faces that he has money. Mm -hmm. He's just trying to. He's basically, he's a child and he's trying to yeah, play, yeah. but he's a child who is looking for something more. He mm -hmm. doesn't want what they want. They just want him to go into this superficial marriage. And, and the character of Susan, one of the things about this movie, to, before I get to that point, is I just feel like all the characters really do give you a three-dimensional feel about them. Even like Susan, mm -hmm. who's a very superficial person, clearly. But you kind right. of feel like you understand the character. She's not just somebody who's walking through the lines. She's she's marrying Arthur because she knows she's supposed to marry somebody in their financial strata. And that's who her father wants her to marry. So she's willing to put up with anything she has to put up with. Even though she knows for for a fact he doesn't love her. He comes out and he writes, mm -hmm. he tells her he doesn't love her. Right. And... I mean, jumping ahead, but later on when she catches Arthur in this very sort of intimate moment with Liza Minnelli's character, you would think that she would be jealous, but she doesn't act that way. And it's, it's like, is it because she just sort of takes it for granted that he would have other women during this relationship, even though it's their engagement party? Or was she really just fooled and thinks that it was an innocent moment. Well, I think it's one, one of two things. It's either the first thing that you said, that she just understands that this is a fact of life, which is probably mm -hmm. the type of world she's lived in anyway, mm -hmm. or she's just living in denial. I don't think she's legitimately fooled. I think, you know, it, you don't have to have, uh, you, don't, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out what's going on there. Right, but, right. but I do think that maybe she's just fooling herself. Mm -hmm. I think... Again, jumping way ahead to the end, I think her reaction when he breaks it off at the end, when he tells her, I don't love you, I, I'm in love with another woman, she takes it, I, I think it's, it, there's a little bit of heartbreak, there's a little bit just disappointment that this is not the way the plan is supposed to go, so, yeah, I don't know, she's, 
I'm not sure I have a, I'm not sure I have my finger on on her character exactly what makes her tick because yeah, See, she's not in that many scenes. At the end, I just I think it's more it's not the way it's supposed to go. That's the way I interpret it because ultimately when her father's ready to kill him, her response is he's not worth it. So she's already given up on him. It's been 15 minutes and she's given up on him already. So all right. that stuff about her being in love and everything was you know purely yeah, because yeah. that was what she was supposed to be. So now that it's not going to work out, all right, she's already right. moved on. You know what I mean? Because yeah. she wasn't in love with him. She never was in love with him. She just, you yeah, know, it was she just was... where she was raised to be the bridge. Yeah. That's that's the way I interpret her character. Now, this movie does something that I think is incredible because they actually make Liza Minnelli into an attractive person. Because I don't think <laughs> Liza Minnelli is an attractive person. I just don't. Uh, but the I... chemistry between her and Dudley Moore in this movie is tremendous. Yeah, it's fun. I, I love them as a couple throughout this movie. I think she is instantly captivating. I, I think she's, yeah, I, I've never been much of a fan of hers, uh, but I think in this movie, she just, she steals it. She's as good as he is. And yeah, exactly. Their chemistry, their scenes together are just great right from the beginning. So. Yeah. Interestingly, um, uh, I did see some trivia on this where, uh, where they had uh, other people who were uh, considered for the roles uh, originally, Jeff Bridges was considered for the role of Arthur, as really? was George Siegel. Uh, Where is it? There was a list of people who were considered for uh, Linda: Mia Farrow, Farrah Fawcett, Goldie Hawn, Barbara Hershey, Diane Keaton, Jessica Lange, Bette Midler, Gilda Radner, Susan Sarandon, Sybil Shepherd, and Meryl Streep were all considered for the role. That's oh, and, a... and Tuesday Weld. Excuse me, I, I missed her. Wow, that's quite a list. That's and she beat all of them. That's I'm trying to think. And and uh, oh, and apparently John Belushi was also offered the role of Arthur. Would have been a very really? very different movie. Yeah, would have. I, I think you know, part of George the appeal Siegel's is one. is Dudley Moore in this movie. Like I said, despite the extremely quick wit, seems exceptionally vulnerable at every moment in this movie. And I think that's one of the things that makes you latch on to him and makes him such an appealing character. And I, I don't know if anybody else would have played it. I certainly don't think anybody would have played it better than Dudley Moore did. And I'm not a huge Dudley Moore fan. I can't come up with another movie where I say, oh, this is the, the other one that I really, really like with him in it. No, but I think a lot of it has to do with just the physicality of him in this role. Because he's small, because he looks and acts sort of like a man baby throughout the movie. I, I think if you had somebody like a Jeff Bridges, I don't think it would work. Jeff Bridges looks too like a grown man. But... Arthur, his or Dudley Moore, his physicality because he's so small in stature, you you believe it. He does sort of embody this child who hasn't really grown up yet. Yeah, absolutely. And and the chemistry between him and John Gilgood is also awesome. Oh yeah, John Gilgood yeah, apparently. John Gilgood, oh, every scene, every line of dialogue he has. And and apparently he he had refused the role on more than one occasion before he finally decided to accept it. And uh, apparently it just got to the point where they offered him enough money that he just said, okay, I'm taking this part. But he certainly didn't mail it in. He, I mean, he, he won, well, he won Best Supporting Actor for this role. And I think yeah. a well-deserved Oscar it was. Uh, yeah. he, he's another one where, where his delivery of the lines that he gives, which are usually very, very cutting and sarcastic, uh, it's very dry the way he delivers them. And yet you can just read so much into his performance by his 
you know, what physicality he does have, by the expressions on his face, by the way he looks, where he looks, when he looks. And you, you always know that deep down inside, he truly loves Arthur oh, yeah. as a son. And right away from his first scene, when he, it's, you know, the morning after Arthur has been out with his prostitute and Hobson comes in, he wakes them up. He basically escorts her out, gets her out of the house and everything. And the next scene you see him, Arthur is sitting on a throne reading the morning newspaper and Hobson is with them there. And Arthur's like, hey, do you want to run my bath for me? And he just looks at him deadpan. He's like, it's what I live for, sir. And he just like... <laughs> Yeah, this says, like makes no motion to go there, and Arthur's like, "Yeah, okay, I can start my own bathtub." And then when he does it, and then Hobson just sits down in Arthur's chair and finishes reading the newspaper. And it's, it's yeah, like that's the relationship. He's like, he's his butler, but I think part of it, he he's at a point in where he's close enough to the end of his life where he realizes like this this guy can barely function, and I've got to do more than just wait on this guy. I've got to make sure that he can survive and he can function when I'm gone, because at that point he might realize he will be gone soon. So, well, there's there's also this, you know, you get the sense that. The scene that played out in the beginning with the hooker and then she's there in the morning and he makes the arrangements to have her driven to wherever she's going, that that scene has played out time and time again over the last mm-hmm. however many years. I don't know how, mm-hmm. how old Arthur is supposed to be in this. My guess would be 35, 36, somewhere in that range, which is probably that's... considerably younger than Dudley Moore was. But I think that's about how old the character is supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, he looks he looks old enough but i i kind of got the impression he was supposed to be younger but i don't know it's possible like, I, I even, even even if yeah. he, let's even take 10 years off that let's say he's 25 26 still mm-hmm. just the same you know you get the sense that that hobson has been through this scenario many times with the hooker in right. bed and waking up in the morning and that when arthur meets linda and mm-hmm. it's as we said the chemistry between them is terrific and it's effectively for all intents and purposes, love at first sight. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Hobson doesn't realize that right away. And he just thinks she's another, you know, just another woman that he's infatuated with or that he has a mild interest in. And he treats her the same way he's treated every other one that he came along with, with his quips and his comments and his biting uh, attitude. And an author actually gets, you know, legitimately angry at him, which mm-hmm. I think is a very, very different turn of personality for him he just doesn't you know that's not part of his character set and that's when Hobson realizes hey he is growing up and this is for real and this is probably the right girl for him it's when Arthur says I just broke up with Linda because he's got to get married and Hobson says I don't know why you broke up with her a nice little girl like that would have saved you a fortune in prostitutes and that's what makes Arthur snap he's like don't ever talk about her that way ever again he's like why are you such a snob and he storms yeah. out of the room and then he comes back. He's like, I've never spoken to you that way. I don't know why I did that. And that's when Hobson kind of realizes he's like, for the first time, he just saw Arthur behave like a man. And that's that's when he kind of changes and when he he Linda and, you know, convince her to pursue this. Yeah. That's, and it's another good scene when he goes to Linda's house and and then, you know, tells her and, and Barney Martin is he's really a oh, sitcom God. actor. <laughs> so good. You know, I know him from being on The Odd Couple in the oh, yeah, 70s. Oh, Seinfeld's dad. From, uh, Seinfeld's dad is probably his most famous role. He was also, uh, Tony Randall had his own sitcom where he played a judge, and he was the court reporter in that. He's, I know him as a TV, you know, sidekick-type role uh, actor. I don't know of any other major motion picture that he was in, but he plays the part really well for comedic purposes. He's, he's as superficial the other way as Susan and her father are in their way. 
that he's, you know, oh, you know, as soon as I met him, I knew I liked him. And the only reason he likes him is because he's got $750 million. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And when, when uh, Arthur actually calls Linda and breaks up with her, it cuts to her after she's told it to her father. And her father is at the table breaking down, weeping. And he's like, I just need to be alone for a minute. I can't deal with this. He's taking it harder than she is. <laughs> and, and there's just, you know, the wonderful comedic scene with uh, Dudley Moore and the neighbors, Perry and his wife. <laughs> Perry and his wife. My my husband has a gun. Yeah, yes, and for all I know, he could have shot it as you scream. <laughs> yeah, Perry, you're a dead man. <laughs> oh, I, that's what, what I, isn't it when uh, said, when when Bonnie Morton opens the door? Doesn't he say, "Don't you hate Perry's wife"? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you hate Perry's wife? Yeah. Yes. that's the first thing he said yeah that's when when this movie has like two of my all-time favorite comedy scenes that's one of them scene with perry and his wife and the other one is when he goes to susan and we meet her father for the first time and they have the scene in the parlor with the moose head on the wall oh yes i, I like my family we will quote we will quote lines from that scene all of the time like when he's just when he, like when he's alone there and he just looks at the moose head he's like this must be awfully embarrassing for you yeah. and then when when uh, Johnson comes in and he's like, you must have hated this moose. He's like, Where, where's the rest of it? And like every scene, and when he says, anybody ever messed with me, they would get hurt. And you just see this quick take of Arthur looking up at the moose and looking back. It's the best reaction I've ever seen. And yet that scene just break, like I break down every time I see that scene. Now there's a, uh, in the trivia notes on this that I saw, it said that during that scene, they actually had to refilm it because one of the uh, workers on the set started to laugh so hard while they were filming it that he fell off a ladder. So they ended up having to totally redo the scene because <laughs> he was cracking up so much. Oh, and, and most of that, oh, I mean, some of it is dialogue, and, but most of it is, is the delivery. You know, that, that's one of the things. Yeah. There, there are times when you can see a comedy, and if you just read the script, you don't realize how funny it is until you see the way the lines are delivered. There's a lot of quips in this that you could read, and you know, oh, yeah, that's, that's clever, that's, that's funny. But there's also, just between John Gielgud and Dudley Moore in particular, just the way they deliver the lines just adds to the humor at such a great extent that it, it just, you know, it, it's what makes this movie hold up the way it does. Yeah. Yeah, and like such like honest moments, like when when John Gielgud is dying, when he's in the hospital and Arthur comes to visit him for his birthday and brings him all of these gifts, like, like that a kid would bring. He has no idea what he's doing, but he brings his, he brings Hobson a cowboy hat and puts it on his head. And Hobson's like, if I begin to die, please take this off my head. And it's just, again, you see like the child, like he's, he's never been in that position. He's never had to deal with that loss. He's never had to take care of anybody. That's actually one of those things when he goes on his first date with Linda and he says, I've never taken care of anybody. Everyone's always taking care of me. But if you got sick, I would take care of you. And that's sort of, it's, it's like this very, it's not saying I love you, but it is absolutely just saying I love you. And, and that's, that's what he thinks love is like in his weird stunted arrested development. That's, that's what he thinks love is. That's how he would show, he would demonstrate his fidelity to her is by taking care of her in a sort of physical capacity, because that's what Hobson has done for him. And that's the only real love he has ever had in his life. He needs to make an appointment 
with his dad, like at his dad's office to see him. Like that's the damage you see. And that's when you see, okay, now the alcoholism is kind of making sense when he has to make an appointment to see his father at his office. And the subject is this prearranged loveless marriage. It's like, okay, now I get it why he's going out drinking until he can't walk straight and he's picking up hookers. This is making a little bit more sense. And and even in that scene, it's, you know, you start to see the, the depth of Hobson's caring for him when he's he stays in the uh, the waiting area and Paul Gleason in I guess an early mm-hmm. role of his career starts you know railing about how you know he yeah. he's a drunk and he doesn't deserve all of this and and uh, John, what is John Gilgood says uh, I wouldn't know I'm just a servant but then again go screw yourself <laughs> something to that effect <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly um, and, oh yeah and the scene when Arthur is like ro- uh, racing around he just takes he just takes like gets in a Formula One racer and goes around the track a couple times because that's what he can do and he just does it because he's depressed and Hobson's like would you remove your helmet for a minute he's like why just please do it he does it and then he's like would you remove your goggles too why please and he does it and once he's got the goggles and helmet, Hobson just starts slapping him in the face he's like you spoiled little bastard he's like you think you're unloved everybody feels feels that way welcome to the world and, and by the way it's I just love this you. you know tough love moment it's like yeah you kid gotta grow up but yeah yeah it's it's there's so many like just sweet scenes in this thing that it mm-hmm. would be easy to overlook them and i have to say i was guilty of that in many of my viewings of this movie until i was watching it yesterday and it's very enjoyable on that superficial level just watching it for the comedy but it added so much more to it when i started seeing about you know, what the relationships are between these people and the relationship between John Gilgood and Dudley Moore, uh, Hobson and Arthur, and the relationship between Linda and Arthur and how they care about each other and how they develop that. It really just makes this movie so much, it gives it so much more depth and it just makes it so, you know, such a sweet little movie. And, and it is a little movie. I mean, it's not a big budget blockbuster. It's not, you know, a special effects movie. It's It's really a dialogue and performance driven movie oh yeah yeah and it's it's like barely it's under a hundred minutes i think it's only just a little bit over an hour and a half um but it like yeah the, the dialogue and the performances i think it's got a ton of quotable lines like again like i've mentioned some that we say but like when uh, when arthur is at dinner w- with susan and she says a real woman could stop you from drinking she says it'd have to be a real big woman just <laughs> something like that just yeah, well, I, it's... I think the biggest line that I heard repeated the most when this movie came out was uh, the response, not so much the initial line, but when Arthur says, I think I'm going to take a bath, and, and Hobson just says, I'll alert the media. That's, that's the one you've, uh, that I think I heard the most from people. Is, you know, anybody says something stupid and somebody would respond with that response. But, you know, the other part of like yeah. uh, that, that I like about this is, you know, Arthur does go through an arc. He doesn't meet Linda and all of a sudden, okay, mm-hmm. the grown-up inside him comes out. He still has to grow up. He still has to find his way. Mm-hmm. He, he offers on several times to set her up in an apartment that he's just going to marry Susan and then basically doing what his grandmother suggested and just have her there as you know somebody he can mess with on the side. The mistress. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And she has too much integrity to do that. She's not willing to do that. She'd rather either be the person he loves, you know, totally, or, you know, say goodbye to this relationship because it's going to be too painful for her. So she has, you know, she makes it Mm -hmm. that she's not attainable in that easy way. 
and he has to grow up and realize that he's willing to give up everything to be with her. And that's when that's when it really happens, when he says, you know, I don't care. I'm going to give up the seven hundred and fifty million dollars if I have to. You know, being with you is more important. And then ultimately, you know, because it's a sweet little movie, he gets the seven hundred and fifty million dollars anyway. Right. And I think just because I think like there, there's a moment at the end of the movie that I always felt was a little bit weird because it didn't feel like it fit the tone of the movie. But I think it is necessary. And it's when Burt Johnson beats the crap out of out of Arthur in like behind the wedding and almost kills him with a knife. When Again, that line, he's taking a knife out of the cheese. You think he wants some cheese? <laughs> uh, I think we're going to die. <laughs> yeah. I always love that moment, but like, it's a weird moment because this has not been a movie with any sort of violence or anything. It's been a comedy. It's been a love story and everything. And all of a sudden this guy is coming at you with a knife. Where did this come from? But I actually think that moment as jarring as it is, is necessary because if the stakes for this movie were just, I'm going to give up my money. That's, that's hard for the everyday audience to really care about. It's like, yeah, none of us know what it's like to lose three quarters of a billion dollars. So we don't really feel sorry for you. And if that's all it took, then I, I, I do think you need the physical stake of, okay, he's broken it off with Susan. What is the consequence to this? Oh, her father's going to stab him to death. That's a bigger deal. And, but it's also, it's just enough to say, okay, this is real. This is, this is a sense of danger, but Burt Johnson is undercut by Martha just slapping him and just saying, don't screw with me. And that's all it takes. It's like, okay, when does, this is real again. This is not, we did not change what genre of movie we're in. We just needed that little wake up call. But I think, I think, you know, it's earned anyway, though. Mm -hmm. I agree with you every point you made there, but I do believe it's also earned because that scene with the moose when Burt Johnson tells him the first time he ever killed a man. Yep. And, and you see that this guy is basically a seething volcano, and he lets it be known, Susan is my most prized possession, and if you screw with her, you know, then I'm, I'm, you're going to regret it. What happens if I, I'm, I swear I'll make her happy, but what happens if I just make her cranky? Yeah. <laughs> For cranky, you'll probably just break my legs, right? <laughs> yeah, there's so many little things like that that are just, you know, that's, you, you go into it for the one-liners, and then you appreciate all the other things that you get. Mm -hmm. yeah, and, and, you know, there's, there's, like I said, so many little things. Just, you know, we mentioned earlier that during the time when Hobson is sick, he's not drinking. I think right, right immediately he's offered a scotch, and he's like, no, no, not now. We're going to get through this. Right. You know, he, he immediately knows it's time to grow up. That's, you know, that's it. I'm done. Mm-hmm. And then it's followed after Hobson dies. You see him relapse. He's in some local dive bar or whatever, talking to some old drunk, telling telling him that he's a dentist or whatever. And just this, this well, first, first it starts off with one of my favorite things is when uh, the drunk is saying, you know, in the other countries, they're all going into the army. They're learning how to fight. Everybody in this country is dancing. <laughs> yeah. What do you do for a living? I'm a dance instructor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I love it. He says something he's... I, I don't remember, but Arthur says something he's talking about. Like, well, yeah, once he tells him he's a dentist, he's like, it's not easy with the teeth and the gums and the blood. And the drunk just says this line, oh, my God. Like this yeah. weird slur. I just, I love We're that not bad movie. guys. Not bad guys. I hate dentists. Yeah. <laughs> but, oh, yeah, just I, I think it's it's a weird like you're, you're right it's a small movie it's easily missable it's easily forgettable but it's it's just a collection of great little scenes with wonderfully memorable dialogue funny and and just a a very sweet and sort of honest love story you know it's it's not 
it's not it doesn't it's not like pretty woman where there are these you know grandiose displays of affection and everything it's just it's very normal and grounded despite the fact that the protagonist is a eccentric millionaire and the love of his life he meets when she's stealing a necktie <laughs> so. yeah and and the thing that i take from the sequel which again i didn't see but from the reviews i hear is see it's i think it's very hard to play that part the drunk playboy who's never grown up and be appealing and i think russell russell brand just doesn't have that character you know i I think dudley moore had that i think there was something about him that you saw the vulnerability throughout it and you just like him every step of the way even when he says something stupid like well you had six relative relatively good years to the girl talking (laughs) about how she had gotten raped i mean you know you you cringe that he said that but you cringe for him you don't cringe and hate him for it. Right. And I, I think, again, like coming out like the, you need a certain type of actor to play this part. I think maybe, and I don't even know if he could do it now, but a modern version of this movie, like a new remake, maybe somebody like a Zach Galifianakis could do the part. Uh, but maybe it might have had to have been like 10 years ago. I don't know if he could do it now. Um, he, he would yeah. fit the role better than Russell Brand because Russell Brand to me is just more annoying. Zach Galifianakis, right, yeah. when I've seen him, there is a certain innocence to his 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 demeanor that might mm-hmm. carry through and let him play a part like this. I don't think he'd do it better, <laughs> but I think he might be no. able to do it some justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Is there anybody in the cast who we haven't discussed yet that's worth mention? Uh, uh, I think we've hit on all the, all the major players. I mean, I, Geraldine Fitzgerald, we really didn't hit on, who plays Martha, his grandmother. And she just plays a tough old bat who, you know, nobody would, would mess with her. Even Burt Johnson, who's ready to kill Arthur, backs off when she smacks him. <laughs> so, you know, I, just, I, I enjoy the way she's played in it. And, you know, there's, her role is relatively small, but she does manage to... Uh, to carry it off very well. And then the other character of, of any significance that we haven't really talked about is Ted Ross as Bitterman. And, uh, you know, he's yeah. also got a small role, but you can see throughout he he also cares for Arthur and just enjoys being with him. And at the end, he just says, you know, it's very rare that a chauffeur gets to laugh. Yeah. You know, thank yeah. you, sir. And, and you know, the, yeah. you, it, it all comes through. It's like, you know, they, they really are, you know, Bitterman and Hobson are more Arthur's family than anybody in his family. And the only one in his family who he seems to care about at all is his grandmother. Yeah, and they're the people who are rooting for him. Like, at the end, when they're coming out of the church and, and Martha offers Arthur the money again or whatever, she's like, take it, there's never been a working-class Bach. You, there's this moment where, like, Bitterman kind of, like, under his breath is like, all right! He's, like, happy. He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep this job. Everything is going to be fine. But... So yeah, you're right. Like he doesn't have a large part, but he—I he, mean—he has a significant chunk of screen time. But he's just kind of there as, as the you know professional, the the guy who's there to support. He doesn't have the same fatherly relationship, but there is—I mean, when when Hobson is dying, you see that it's affecting Bitterman too, and you do get that sense that these guys are friends. They are a sort of family. I almost so. see you know Hobson very clearly. You see as the father figure for him, and Bitterman's almost like an uncle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's very telling in that final scene that his biological father isn't there. Right. He doesn't, you know, he's, he's had enough when the, when the wedding's called off, he leaves, you know, he, he's, he's, he's never, you get the impression he's never been a father to him and he's never going to be. Yeah. 
and and I think maybe even like the distance with the actual family members, like with Burt Johnson, who's only got two scenes with the father, who's got like one and a half scene and Martha, who's got two scenes or something. We don't see them that much. And therefore the core characters become more powerful and more important. And I think, you know, John Gilgood absolutely deserved an award for this performance. He is great. I think he is the, the highlight of the movie, but it's still you still get really strong performances and characterization from your romantic couple. I think Liza Minnelli is terrific in this, and Dudley Moore is great, and and they're so good together. You want, I mean, I've I've never seen the sequel. I've seen parts of the sequel, and I like after a half an hour, I was like, you know what, this is not going to be good. I don't want to watch this. I'm happy with the the hour and a half that I got the first time around, but. Yeah, it was like, I, I'm happy with that. I like that. Just that little bubble of their life in this movie, I think is great. And characters are fun. They deserve their happy ending. I have seen the sequel, Arthur 2 on the Rocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw it. I did not see it in the theater. I saw it when it came out on video, which was probably, I don't know, I'm guessing around 1985, 1986, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. And I saw it once, only once, and I just... I just recall it as being very forgettable. Yeah. yeah. Now, now Dudley Moore was nominated for a uh, an Academy Award for this movie, just okay. to, as yeah. an, as an aside, and and I would say it's it's a worthwhile nomination. I don't know that it's a performance that is worthy of winning the Academy Award, but I think it's certainly worthy of of you know recognition, and that's that he got with a nomination. I mean, he he demonstrates range with being, you know, the sort of somber, you know, child once Hobson has died to being the sort of, uh, you know, when when he's drunk, that's that's a a certainly memorable performance. I I mean, sometimes the, sometimes the 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 Academy will nominate or award somebody just for giving a performance where you can't see anybody else doing that. And I think like look at something like Johnny Depp from Pirates of the Caribbean. No other actor could have done that performance that way. So I think he deserved a nomination for that. And like we said, I don't think any other actor could have done Arthur this way. So that's that's worthy of recognition. Yeah, I, I agree totally. The obviously we already mentioned that John Gilgood won Best Supporting Actor for it. The other Academy Award that this movie took is brings us to the next topic that I wanted to discuss. It won for uh, best original song. Yes. Uh, Arthur's theme. Now, this stands out in my mind at the time. Uh, again, this you, you would have been too young to know this, but in the late 70s, early 80s, Chris Cross came out and did, uh, he had, what is it, uh, Run Like the Wind, mm-hmm. Ride Like the Wind, I think it is, Sailing, Sailing uh, this song. Uh, you know, he had a handful of songs that, that were pretty big hits at the time, and then he's just kind of faded into obscurity after that. <laughs> Uh, but this song stood out in my mind because one of my closest friends, this was his wedding song. Nice. It's a good song. It's a great song. It's, and yeah, it's the, the whole refrain, the be- when you get caught between the moon and New York City. It's called Arthur's Theme, which I think is kind of a, a generic and not very appealing title. But the sort of subtitle of it is the best you can do. It's No, it's a really great song. It feels very of its time, uh, much like Criss Cross's other stuff, like sailing and such. But it's it's still yeah it's a good song i i can i can understand somebody picking this one as a wedding song yeah well you know what to to take it a step further i'm going to delve into that just for a moment because i think it's kind of interesting is uh my friend got married and the reception was held on a uh on a yacht Mm -hmm. that traveled around the island of manhattan for the reception so as they're playing this song we're on a yacht that's going by the statue of liberty 
And, you know, when they start talking about, you know, in New York City and all of that, I mean, the song not only is a love song, but it's a love song to New York City. And to be on a boat that's traveling around New York City, you know, it, it was really kind of spectacular at the time. And it also, like, going back to the movie, the way it's played, it's during the, it's well, it's played during the opening and closing credits. But in the opening credits, it's cut to just scenes of Arthur in his limo just driving through New York in New York 1980 at night. It has this feel. It has its own kind of character. And uh, yeah, you get it. This sort of love story, this love affair with the city in this particular era. Yes, it it is definitely a little bit of a love story. You know, a little bit of a love letter to New York in -hmm. in a way that uh, only Woody Allen seems to exceed. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, just, just the score in general. I thought was very effective for this movie. You know, that dun, 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 dun. Like it just played really, really well with the scenes that are going on. And I'm pretty sure that's all Burt Bacharach. I'm not 100%, but I'm pretty sure it is. I thought the score really just went well with the whole tone of the movie. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, you know, generally my, my thoughts are if you notice the score, that's not a positive. You know, it, it should be in the background. It should set set up the scenes and and emphasize the scenes and it's something you should only really kind of notice when you're trying to if it's mm-hmm. jumping out at you when you're not really trying to pay attention to it then they're doing something wrong and it's it's kind of taking over the scene when it shouldn't i think there's one time in the movie where it deliberately like kicks up because it's a transitional scene it's the scene when arthur is driving out of the city to go see susan and it sets up the scene between arthur and burt johnson and that's when it's basically just silent and he's just sitting he's driving through town and he's drinking he's got he's got a bottle in a paper bag drinking as he's driving which again something that doesn't age that well um but the music just kind of carries that scene for kind of a long transition we get about 20 or 30 seconds of the music but it's such a kind of joyful like just up-tempo kind of peppy bit of music and we get to see him as he's driving getting more and more drunk but not in a reckless way again it's it's played for laughs in a way that really shouldn't work but you just see the car drive up and he has that laugh you know when he's drunk because he laughs and it's just like, okay, we're, it's setting us up, it's cueing us in that we're going back to this scene like the beginning of the movie where he's going to be drunk and it's going to be funny and it's, it's kind of announcing the, the, the intentions of the next scene. And it does that with just the music and his laughter. Mm-hmm. And, and the laughter is very engaging, even though it could have been annoying if it was done the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, that's something, you know, they, I think they took a lot of risks with the performance. And with the script, even. Yeah. Because, again, you're talking about subject matters that aren't necessarily that humorous in some ways. Right. You know, right. a, a cackling laugh could just be very irritating. Uh, a, a comedy about a drunk guy could be very insensitive. Some of the jokes that they have in here could be very insensitive. And yet, when you put it all together, it's very sweet and endearing. And I hate to keep using the same words all over and over again, but I think those are the ones that come to mind for me. Yeah, that's true. And and again, when you couple that with the story about a millionaire playboy who just doesn't feel like he's got anybody in his life who loves him, like this, this isn't a character we should feel a lot of sympathy for. And in a lot of other cases, we wouldn't. And you're right, like all of these different subject matters and taboos that we frown on today, they they kind of mix together in some weird kind of comic soup that makes this character lovable and makes the story really funny and it does it kind of despite its own 
its own kind of uh, the situations, despite what what the subject matter. So I don't know how. Yeah, somehow they come up with something that is, as you say, it is sweet and endearing. When like other movies that would try this and would fail spectacularly. Oh, absolutely. This is this is I think the only directorial effort by. Oh no, there are two. Uh, the director of this movie is uh, Steve Gordon, okay. and he directed this movie. And in 1980, oh, he didn't. It wasn't even a movie. He directed five episodes of a TV show called Good Time Harry. Those are his only yeah. directorial credits. And he passed away in 1982, so not long after this movie oh. came out. He was 44 oh. years old when he passed away. And you you wonder. I mean, I don't know what what he died of, and if he had been ill for a long time or whatever. But had he not died, you wonder where you know where he would have gone from here. Right, right. Now yeah, I, I, I always ask the question on these shows: Have you seen anything about the finances on this movie? No, I've never looked up how much this one cost uh, or how much it made. I have no idea for this one. You have a guess? Uh, she nineteen eighty one. Would it cost fifteen million dollars to make? Uh, no, seven. Seven million. Okay. All right. So I overshot. Um, did it make fifteen million? Well, according to Box Office Mojo, there is no foreign gross. Okay. So it probably at that wasn't time, at, at that time, yeah, it was probably just released in the United States. The domestic gross on this, this is a mega mega hit. The domestic gross on this is ninety five million four hundred sixty one thousand six hundred eighty two dollars. With a budget of seven million, that's a huge huge markup. So, who like um. Yeah, that's that's yeah. Okay, wow. I was trying to do the math and I couldn't even do. Oh, it's it's somewhere around between thirteen and fourteen times its budget. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Like, oh, impressive. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. What what was the director's name? Gordon. Steve Gordon. Steven Gordon. He's also Good he job. also wrote the movie. Oh man, God. Oh now now I'm really upset that he died so young that he died right after this movie because he could have done a lot of other stuff. Now that I know, but yeah, because cl- clearly he was a talented writer director. At least for, he, for for a romantic comedy, he was. Does he have any other like TV credits? You said just five episodes he directed. Yeah, that that's five episodes of a TV series that I'm totally unfamiliar with. Hmm. And then he's got eleven credits as a writer. Apparently, he got a credit for Author Two on the Rocks, which that was purely because they were his characters. Right, based on characters. Yeah, yeah. that's oh by the way, that's 1988. Okay. Uh, the series Good Time Harry. That name wrote is six familiar. episodes of that. That starred Ted Bessel. Who you, if you know him, it would be from the show That Girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eugene Roche, who I'm, I can't picture off, off the top of my head. Oh yeah, yeah, he's he's a character actor. If you saw him, you'd recognize him. Okay. Uh, Marsha Strassman, who was from the Bob Newhart show and now has been doing voices on The Simpsons for years. Yeah. She's uh, Miss Krabappel. Yeah. Uh, they had one season of this show in 1980, and uh, that was it. Hmm. And but uh, otherwise, let's see, he. He wrote a TV series called The Practice back in 1976. He wrote an episode of Barney Miller, episode of Chico and the Man, episode of the new Dick Van Dyke show. I wonder, for him just to get like so little directing credits, like just in television and one movie, but like even in his 40s, I wonder if he started out in theater. I wonder if he was more of like a, a theater director, like in Broadway or something like that, or just came to it from a completely different profession. Well, I, I'm thinking either that's a that's certainly a possibility, or he came up as a writer and eventually yeah. managed to get himself the directorial. Uh, you know, it's very famous the story about uh, Sylvester Stallone writing Rocky mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then refusing to sell it to them unless they let him star in it. Yeah. 
and maybe that's kind of what happened here. I have no reason to uh, to to necessarily believe that. Yeah, but yeah, it's po- you know, with no reason to to verify that. But it's possible that he wrote this and sold the script on the, uh, you know, on the the provision that he gets to direct it. Yeah, yeah. Well, seven million dollars to make ninety four. You say ninety six? Uh, right around ninety six, between ninety five and ninety six. Yeah. I, I had no idea. I, I, I Neither would have surprised me if you told me that this was a hit or a flop. Neither one would have really surprised me, but I'm, I, I'm, I, I'm I knew it was a hit because I remember when it came out, it was very popular, but I didn't know it was that yeah. much of a hit. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's the end. Being, being of my age, like, I've never talked to anybody else about this movie outside of, you know, my dad, my mom, and my brother, just because growing up watching it. But, yeah, so... It's, I, I mean, it's, I mean, I, I was really glad that we could do it. I was really glad that you could, you agreed to have me on to talk about this episode. It's, it's always been one of my favorites. And, you know, lately there has been the, it's been trending the hashtag seven favorite movies or seven favorite films. And I attempted to make that list. This one didn't crack the top seven, but it did make my top 10. Um, and it's just for part of it is nostalgia. Part of it is just the movie and watching it again, confirmed that like, this is a top 10 movie for me. Um, okay, so, so you, you're showing your hand a little bit here. So I, I, just, am, I, am I was going to just ask you to rate it on the Jaws scale, and let me uh, reiterate the Jaws scale for everybody before you do. Uh, for purposes of reviews, not necessarily uh, indicative of what I think of those actual movies, but for purposes of this show, Jaws is a classic movie, nearly perfect. Whatever flaws it has are so minimal that it doesn't detract from it at all. Uh, Jaws 2 is a really solid movie, some flaws, but, you know, doesn't quite reach the level of great, but you really like it a lot. Jaws 3, it's watchable, there's nothing inherently wrong with it, but it's nothing special either. Jaws 4 is a piece of crap. Go ahead and rate it on the Jaws scale, Ryan. So, for me, I consider this Jaws. I would put this at the Jaws level, however... I also feel a lot of my experience with this is nostalgia and I am thinking about it like, and, and maybe I'm not always fair to it, but for me it's jaws, but I would understand somebody saying it's jaws too. So, all right. Well, I went into this, you know, to, to my, my reviewing of it for the purposes of this show, fully expecting it to be jaws too. I expected, as I said, it to be somewhat dated in its humor. I expected to, you know, just find it to be, not quite as special as I thought it was the first, you know, when it was new. However, I was happily surprised, as I've indicated over and over again during this <laughs> recording, that I just really enjoyed it so much. And again, I, I don't want to fall into the trap of saying something has to be as good or better than Jaws to be rated Jaws. For the purposes of this show, I rank this as Jaws by that Woo-hoo! scale. Because nice. I, I don't really see any serious flaws in this movie at all. I do see the, the enjoyment in watching it. The comedy is just tremendous. Uh, and yet it also has, you know, that good feeling throughout it. So, I you know, I, I like I said, I expected it to be Jaws 2. But in watching it, I was happily surprised to find it as, as Jaws for me. All right. Good to hear. Uh, before we call it to a close, uh, first I'll just say thank you again for coming on with me. And I'm sure down the road we'll come up with some other movies for you to come on and do. But uh, why don't you uh, tell, tell, tell everybody what shows on the uh, Fire and Water Network they can find you at. Well, first, thank you very much for having me on the show. It was great to be here. It was great to talk about this movie. I've got three podcasts on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. First and foremost is the Secret Origins Podcast, which is an indexing show chronicling the Secret Origins series published by DC Comics in the 1980s. I also have a Star Wars-related show called Give Me Those Star Wars. 
And I have a show called The Power of Fishnets, which is about the DC Comics characters Black Canary and Zatanna. I am also a regular voice on G.I. Joe, A Real American Headcast, which is about G.I. Joe, as you would imagine. And that one is hosted by Aaron Headmoth. And you're also a regular guest on uh, shows like Pod Dylan and the Film oh, and yeah. Water podcast. And you know, you're turning out to be a semi-regular here as well. <laughs> so. <laughs> so far, so far. Well, it's I, I neglect my family and friends and work obligations in order to do podcasting. So I make myself readily available to everyone. <laughs> oh, I appreciate it. I appreciate you making the time to be on here, and I'm very happy that you picked this movie and got me to watch it again after however many years it's been since I last saw it. I'm happy you liked it as much as I wanted you to. <laughs> Thanks again, and everybody, uh, if you want to write in, we do have an email at jawspodcast at gmail.com, and write in, tell us what you think of this movie, tell us other movies you'd like us to cover. Uh, I have two pieces of email that I should read right now, but I'm not going to. I, I apologize to uh, my two my two email writers. I will get to them next time. You, you take your average kid today, he don't want to go in the army. Yeah, what does he care? Don't. But the communists, they go in the army. If only we had some communists here. No. 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 While our kids are dancing, their kids are learning how to fight. Everybody's dancing here. You're right, you're right. It's not worth talking about. Let me buy you another drink. Right. What do you do? I'm a dance instructor. Oh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, I'm honest to God. I'm a dentist. I hate dentists. You're not bad guys. It's not easy, you know. There's, there's teeth and gums and blood. Oh my God! I, I have to get Luke just to walk into my office. Bartender, uh, we would like two more, please. Haven't you had enough? I want more than enough. <laughs> How come you get all this money for all these drinks? I saved my money. I haven't had a drink in a month. Oh, my God. Well, you see, my father died. So I stayed sober. One, one night at the hospital, he fell asleep. I was watching him. And then he just kept on sleeping. And I was all alone. That's terrible. Ah, listen. I was lucky to know him as all. Are you somebody's father? No, I'm a drunk. Oh, yeah. I have a brother who moved to New Jersey. I'm getting married soon. Great. I don't love her. Oh, no. I don't love her. Well, no, my scene. No, I'm sorry, but this, this is other girl. She steals ties. Uh huh. And gives them to her father. She's funny. Uh huh. I want her. Uh huh. I want her! I have to go. No, 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 Sorry. <clears throat> Sir, your wedding is within less than five hours. Yeah, listen, listen. Go see your brother. All right? Nobody should be alone. 
It's awful to be alone. 